trigger warning. This podcast discusses themes centered around emotional, physical, and sexual violence. While the stories of the survivors are meant to be inspiring and informative, listener discretion is advised. If you are struggling with any of the aforementioned issues, links to resources can be found in the show notes of today's episode. He was in there for a few hours, and then he walked out, and we asked, how did it go? And he said, fine, I passed. And we believed him because it was the 80s and if he would have failed surely he would have been arrested right like at least that was our mind our mindset my mom's mindset my mindset was like okay he must have passed he's free Um, but it turns out he didn't he did not pass that test Um, he failed two very important questions Uh, The first question was, did you intentionally strike Jacob in the head area? And another one was something like, have you ever hit Jacob? And he, he failed both of those questions. Hi, Survivors. I'm Tara Newell. And I'm Collier Landry. And this is the Survivor Squad Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Yay, welcome back. (laughs) And Tara, who do we have as our guest today? We have Eric Carter Landon. He is from New Mexico. And he is the host of the True Consequences podcast. Yes, he is. And fun fact about New Mexico, if you want to know. Let's let's hear it. Okay. So I was in New Mexico for a filming. They were filming uh, Katie Says Goodbye. It's this indie film. But I was there talking to this actress. And she is the wife of Alan Ruck who is in succession oh my goodness that's right he played conrad Uh uh-huh uh-huh and i also wore that shirt in my attack and i never got it back oh you did you you wore what was it katie says goodbye Uh uh-huh it had like a little stab wound and some blood on it so i never got it back i wonder if you could get it back actually because it's in evidence right yeah, I just have to go and file um, and they have to go pull it from evidence and I have to like let them know. But I think after a certain amount of time, evidence kind of goes away. Yeah, I don't know what they do with it. I think they put it in like one of those vaults like they have in um, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark <laughs> where they put the Lost Ark. <laughs> I don't know. Um, you know, I'm just so bummed because Succession just ended and I was, you know, I feel for the last like five years, I have been inculcated by the Roy family. Inculcated? Yes, inculcated. So in, okay. when you are in, inculcated, which I th- believe much like our guest is going to talk about us to uh, talk about with us today, inculcated is to have a certain system of values instilled in you by repetition. Okay. So it's sort of like grooming in a lot of ways. Uh, but I feel like it, just that whole family and their just way of their narcissism, right? You and I talked about this a lot while watching the yeah. show, and even with Dr. Romani, you know, talking about it, the narcissism. And I mean, and, and finally, I, I saw the light with Kendall <laughs> because I just was like, oh, I felt bad for him in a lot of ways. But yeah, he was a total narcissist in the end. Well- with many narcissists, you could feel empathy for them because they tend to prey on empaths. And in the case of Eric, in the case that we're going to talk about today. Yeah. Yeah. He was preyed upon for sure. And, you know, it's a very, 
This is a tough one. This is a tough one to get through. So, you know, we have the trigger warning at the beginning of the show, but this does deal with uh, child sexual violence and, um, you know, in a firsthand accounting of that. So just be warned, but it's a great episode. And Eric is, is a real, is doing some real advocacy work. So what do you think we get into it? Yes, let's get into it. So thank you for coming on today and sharing your story. We appreciate it so much. And I know that your brother today is just like so proud of you. And I just like, you know, how could he not be? So thank you. It's an honor to be here. And and thank you for the kind words. It's, um, yeah, it's a tough story. It's, it was tough to live it's tough to talk about it's tough to listen to but i think that it's one of those i was telling tara before we started recording that this is why it needs to be discussed and this is why it needs to be talked about because it happens a lot more than people even know and because there's so much shame and there's so much victim blaming around this kind of stuff it's hard for people to come forward and talk about it yeah and you know a lot of statistics even in New Mexico about it. Can you share that with us? Um, I I know that I researched the statistics and I, I read them off of my script whenever I was talking about the case, but I know that uh, the national average, New Mexico is astronomically higher. I, I believe it's um, one in every eight kids is exposed to some sort of violence in their home here. Um, and I think it was one in 15 in the US and that's just what's reported. So I think that that number is probably a lot higher than what we even know. I was born in 1980 in New Mexico, in Socorro, New Mexico, which is a tiny town uh, south of Albuquerque. My dad was a Pentecostal evangelist. He was a traveling preacher. He was one of those tent revival guys that you saw on TV in the 80s. Um, that was him. My mom married him when she was 17. I think my dad was maybe 20 at the time. Um, we moved around a lot because of my dad's job. And he traveled a lot. There were times where he would leave us alone for several weeks at a time. And my mom wasn't working because she was a single, but not a single mom, but she was essentially by herself. And so, um, you know, we were living in Texas and I remember there were times where my mom and I would actually pray for someone to bring us food because we didn't know where our next meal was going to come from. And because of the kindness of strangers, you know, there was a neighbor who somehow knew that we needed food. She would drop off a box, you know, every few days just to help us out. Um, and so we're living in Texas at the time. And my mother finds out that my dad is having an emotional relationship with another woman. And I think that that was 
the last straw for her where, you know, she was dealing with a lot, you know, and my brother Jacob had already been born by this, this point. Uh, so it was even more difficult for her because Jacob was a baby and I was, you know, not even in preschool yet. And so she decided to go back to New Mexico to be with her family because she knew that she could get some assistance with the kids, you know. So we moved back. And around the same time, my dad's best friend started coming around. And this guy is somebody that my whole family has known for their entire lives. His father married my parents. His father was also a minister. His sister married my mom's brother. His aunt was my godmother. So we were all very connected. And he starts coming around and showering my mom and I with love and affection and attention things that we were star for at the time. And he knew everything that was going on in my family's relationship and my mom's relationship because he was my dad's best friend. They talked all the time. And so he used that information to start to try to build a relationship with my mom. And in the beginning, it was really, it was pretty awesome. He was a nice guy. He loved to drive fast cars and listen to Aerosmith and lots of really cool music that I was into. He let me watch The Terminator, even though I was way too young to be watching that movie. Um, and so I adored the guy, you know, he had candy all over his house. And that was like my favorite thing. My mom was excited because now there's this male figure who, you know, she knows she starts to have a relationship with him and, you know, everything seemed okay. And then Jacob started to have injuries uh, that were unexplainable and pretty serious injuries. Um, he would have bruises and bumps cuts on his body and then one day he gets a brain injury and a skull fracture and he has to be operated on they have to drain brain fluid from around his like his skull area i guess um and so he has to wear this like styrofoam helmet and my mom is really not sure what's going on. Her boyfriend is telling her that I am jealous of Jacob and that I'm hitting Jacob and I'm kicking Jacob and punching Jacob and pinching Jacob. And that he thinks that I kicked Jacob and that's why he had a skull fracture. Um, I've talked to a lot of people, a lot of experts <laughs> uh, and a lot of them most of them agree, maybe all of them agree, that a six-year-old would not have the uh, force of strength to fracture a baby's skull just with a kick. And so, um, it's also I don't very, very hard to fracture an infant's skull, is it not? Yeah. 
Yeah, and then the story changed. He said that he left me alone with Jacob while he took his kids to his mom's house or to their mom's house and that I picked Jacob out of the crib and dropped him and that's how he fractured his skull. Um, I don't remember that happening. I don't remember kicking Jacob. I don't remember being jealous of Jacob. I prayed for him to be born. You know, this was... I, I wanted a brother more than anything. So when I was accused of hurting Jacob, it was, um, it was really difficult and it's something that sticks with me still. My mom wasn't really sure what was happening. So she decided to send me to live with my dad just to be safe. At the same time, she started to really restrict how much contact her boyfriend had with Jacob alone. And um, there was one day where my um, my mom just was working. My grandmother uh, wanted to go to church. And she called my mom. Jacob had been fussy because he was still recovering from the first brain injury. Uh, he was having ear infections and fevers and a bunch of other problems. Um, actually, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to go backwards a little bit. I forgot one one important piece of the story. So before or shortly after I left, my, my grandmother confronted my mom and asked her if somebody was hurting Jacob. And my mom asked her why. And she said, well, because Jacob usually likes to play kind of rough. He was a little bit of a daredevil. He liked to be tossed up in the air and caught back. You know, he liked to be, he liked to play Superman. And um, his favorite thing to do was in his baby swing, he would reach forward and grab the front legs as the swing went forward. And as it went back, he would pull the whole thing backwards. And so he would be laying on the ground laughing, you know, <laughs> and he had this crazy laugh. He sounded like Eddie Murphy. Um, it was, it was like, <laughs> it was the weirdest thing. <laughs> I can still hear it. Um, but he suddenly became very fearful, um, to the point where my grandma would pick him up over her head and he would grab her hair and start pulling it and pull it out. And he was screaming and crying and shaking. And so my mom asked her boyfriend if he was playing rough with Jacob or if he was, you know, doing something to scare Jacob. And so he said, no, and he grabs Jacob. All I do is this, and he picks him up over his head and Jacob starts screaming and crying and essentially tries to jump out of his hands into my mom's arms. And he's clutching onto her. Um, this bright, happy, beautiful baby who was afraid of nothing is now terrified. And I'm not there to blame anymore. So fast forward to uh, April 9th, 1987. My mom's working her shift at Supermark, which is a local grocery store. Um, my grandmother's watching Jacob and she wants to go to church, but Jacob's not feeling well, so she doesn't want to bring him. So she calls my mom. And she says, you know, I, I want to go to church. What do I do with Jacob? He's not, he's not feeling well. My mom said, well, I get off in an hour. 
you can take him to my boyfriend. What's the worst that could happen in an hour? And immediately after she hung up the phone, she ran to her boss and started begging her boss to let her leave early. She had this horrible feeling that something was going to be terribly wrong if she didn't leave. But he did not allow her to leave, so she just started to busy herself with work. And probably 40 or 45 minutes into that hour, my mom's boyfriend runs into the grocery store in a panic. Um, at the same time, there's an ambulance driving by with its lights on. And he tells my mom that Jacob is unconscious and not breathing. My mom asked him what happened. And he said that he didn't do anything to Jacob, that he didn't hurt Jacob. And he just kept saying that over and over again. Um, Jacob's taken to Socorro General Hospital and his injuries are so severe that he has to be airlifted to Albuquerque, which is 75 miles north of Socorro. Um, when he's brought to the trauma center at the University of New Mexico Hospital, the doctors realize that he needs emergency surgery. His brain is swelling and his lungs are filling up with fluid. Um, he had a broken rib. He had uh, another skull fracture. It might have been the same one, but it was worsened. Um, he had bruises on his body. And the coroner said that it looked like the fracture on his head was a result of a blunt force trauma consistent with the size of an open adult male hand. Um, my mom and her boyfriend and my grandparents are rushing to Albuquerque by car. And the whole time her boyfriend is telling her that he didn't do anything. Um, he promises that nothing happened. It was an accident. His first story was that he was dubbing cassette tapes. Jacob was in his walker. Jacob was fussy, so he gave him some blank tapes to play with. He set Jacob on the couch, and as he turned around to change the tape from one side to the other, Jacob had fallen off and hit his head on the coffee table and started vomiting. Uh, but that is not consistent with the injuries that Jacob had. That would have been more of a sharp force trauma, and it probably would have been in the front of his head instead of the top of his head. Uh, there were several versions of this story. They usually start with the dubbing of tapes, so I feel like maybe that part might be true. Um, but there, were, there was a version where he claimed to have picked Jacob up. Jacob fell out of his hands and hit an armchair. Um... There was a, a version where Jacob was choking, and so he was hitting Jacob on the back to get something dislodged from his throat, and then he fell. There were about five or six versions of that story that were told, depending on who asked and, and when the question was asked. One of the things that the doctor noted in the file, uh, in his interview with the police, was that my mom's boyfriend not one time did he ask if Jacob was okay. Not one time did he try to comfort my mom. Uh, 
the only thing he kept saying over and over again was this isn't going to look good for me this looks really bad for me i can't believe this is happening to me wow yeah well i have some strong words for him but like continue yeah. <laughs> and and unfortunately it gets worse um so i was woken up and i was living in near palm springs in indio california with my dad we had to fly yeah. to albuquerque um we took the first flight out and by the time we got to albuquerque jacob had already died um we were all interviewed my family my whole family was interviewed i was interviewed I was asked multiple times if I hit Jacob, if I kicked Jacob, if I wanted to hurt Jacob. Um, one of the things that my mom's boyfriend told me before I went in with the police was, he said, don't lie. Don't you dare lie. You know what happens to people who lie. Oh, and one of the questions that the police asked me was if I had ever been hit, by my mom's boyfriend or if I'd ever witnessed him hitting Jacob. And I said, I've never seen him hit Jacob and that he, he had never hit me, but he always acted like he was going to. Um, which I don't really remember saying that, but it was in the, in the records. So like one of those, like where he would draw back. Yeah. You know, like, like where there was the fear and, and like mm -hmm. make you flinch type things. Yeah. So, my my mom, you know, when she was questioned, police asked her if they felt that, or if she felt that he was capable of hurting Jacob, if her boyfriend was capable of it. And she said, I don't think so. And she really didn't. You know, like I said, we had known this person our entire lives. Sure, um, sure. He, he had never given any indication that he was that kind of person. Um, and so my mom started to kind of, she just really wasn't sure if he was responsible or if it was an accident. Um, you know, we were kind of letting the investigation play out. And one of the things that happened, so he had told my mom he wanted to talk to her to explain his side of the story, to tell her what really happened. Um, I still have all the letters that he wrote her saying all of that stuff. Um, but he told her the only place that he wanted to talk to her was at Jacob's grave, which I don't even know if that means anything, but I just think it's really, really weird, um, really okay. suspicious. And it's why would you take a grieving mom to her son's grave to talk to her? Like, that just doesn't make any sense. Um, the graveyard's pretty remote. There's really not a lot of people around there. So, you know, I don't know if he was trying to get her alone to, to hurt her or something, but, um, she, she didn't, she didn't meet him there. She actually was to kind of staying away from him. Um, and I didn't understand what was happening fully at that point. I didn't really start to question whether he was capable of or responsible for Jacob's death until one day where he pulled up in my grandparents' yard and my grandfather ran out of the house saying, 
Why don't you hit somebody who can talk, you son of a bitch? Ooh. And and when I saw that, then I started to kind of think, oh, maybe maybe this person did something to Jacob. And maybe maybe I wasn't, you know, the person responsible for hurting Jacob or you know, I, I carried a lot of guilt even though it's pretty obvious that I wasn't responsible. It's still hard, you know? Yeah, well, as so, a child, it's hard to, you know, have that reality if you hurt that kid and you're believing what people are telling you. Mm-hmm. So, so, Eric, were you, did you grow up under the impression that you had done something to hurt your brother? Is that what, is that what you're saying? Um, I think at the time, yeah. I, that was definitely what was in my mind. Yeah. So he was essentially gaslighting you into believing that you had somehow done something to your brother. Yeah. Uh, and because I was a kid, I mean, it probably wasn't that difficult, right? When you're a kid, you trust the adults around you to take care yeah. of you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and so eventually he starts to kind of weasel his way back into my mom's life. Um, he, he tells her, you know, I'm going for a polygraph. This will prove once and for all that I'm not lying. And then we can start our life together. And so he invited us to go with him to the polygraph, but of course we weren't allowed inside. So we waited in the car. Um, it was in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is about two hours from Socorro. Um, he was in there for a few hours and then he walked out and we asked, how did it go? And he said, fine, I passed. And we believed him because it was the eighties. And if he would have failed, surely he would have been arrested. Right. Like at least that was our mind, our mindset, my mom's mindset. My mindset was like, okay, he must've passed. He's free. Um, but it turns out he didn't, he did not pass that test. Um, he failed two very important questions. Uh, the first question was, did you intentionally strike Jacob in the head area? And another one was something like, have you ever hit Jacob? And he, he failed both of those questions. And uh, so was he called in to do the polygraph or was he voluntarily going and saying, I'm going to take a polygraph to show you that I'm innocent. He was called in. But after that happened, he was not arrested. Has he ever been arrested? He was arrested once. He was held for less than 24 hours and then he was let go. Did he have um, buddies that were cops and stuff? Yeah. Uh He played basketball with the police every weekend. Every, I mean, this is a small town. There's probably like 8,000 people there. Everybody knows everybody. all of those cops grew up with him. They all went to school together. They've known each other their entire lives. So, yes, he was friends with the police. He worked for the county. He had the keys to every county building. Um, 
he was wow. very well respected and well known in the community. He really had a lot of power, which is kind of a sign of a psychopath, too. Yeah. Well, it is a sign, but... <laughs> yeah, there's no kind of... Yeah. So yeah. my mom went back to him because she believed that he passed the polygraph. Then he must have been telling the truth. It must have been an accident. She had never seen him hit Jacob. She had never seen him be anything but kind. And so they started to get really serious. They moved in together. They got married. Um... And that's when he became extremely violent with both of us. Um, I don't necessarily need to go through all those details, but it's, I think it's important to say that my mom was a victim of physical, mental, emotional, and sexual abuse. Um, I was a victim of physical, emotional, mental, sexual abuse as well. This person, this man, this monster, whatever you want to call him, he... Sure, monster. Seems good to me. He created this hell for myself and my mom. And every day was like, I didn't know if we were going to make it. I didn't know if we were going to live to see the next day. Um, and every time he would beat my mom up, we would have to rehearse the story that we would tell everybody just so that he wouldn't get in trouble for hitting her. And every time the cops would be called by the neighbors because it was so loud, she would, he would say that she was attacking him. She's crazy. He's defending himself. The cops would laugh. They would pat him on the back and then they would leave. Wow. Well, I'm sorry that you had to do that. And, you know, it, it's these men that do this, these people that do this are so controlling, so powerful. They coerce you into this situation where you can't leave. And it takes the average of a person seven times to leave their abuser. And so, you know, this happens with so many people. And I'm so sorry you had to go through this. And no one should have to go through this. It goes back to what you said at the top of our conversation, that this is unfortunately not an uncommon story. <laughs> so my mom was being told every day, the only way you're going to leave is in a body bag. And while I was being sexually abused, I was told that if I said anything to anybody, he would murder me and my mom and nobody would ever find us. And so that was a secret I kept with me for as long as I could until I knew it was safe enough for me to say something. And, and I say that because a lot of people want to blame my mom for what happened in the situation. And while I think that she certainly has a level of responsibility as my parent and as Jacob's parent, it's really hard to understand what it's like to have somebody twist and warp your mind in the way that this person did to everybody around him. Absolutely. Absolutely. Everyone was just a tool for him to manipulate to get what he wanted. And he was really fucking good at it. Like he was a master at it. Yeah. He knew exactly how to disarm us. He knew exactly what to do to, to make us fall in love with him. 
so that we depended on him. And he knew exactly what to say to keep us in line. And I couldn't look at him. I couldn't even turn my eyes towards him without him getting angry and accusing me of giving him dirty looks. And then that would ultimately result in my mom coming to my defense and then getting beat up. Yep. Yep. And so my mom was not aware of what was happening to me. She felt in a lot of ways that she was getting the brunt of everything. And I think in some ways she probably felt like she deserved it. The amount of self-blame that she has on herself related to what happened to Jacob is, you know, when people start to victim blame my mom, I tell them you, you'll never come close to the amount of blame that she gives herself. Yeah. So like, don't try. Um, he started to groom my 14 year old cousin. He thought that she was going to be the perfect victim for him, but he didn't really know her. Um, if he would have known her, he probably would not have tried to groom her. And so he would call her at my grandmother's house and tell her that she was beautiful and that he'd always liked her and that he always wanted to be with her, but that nobody would ever understand. So she could never say anything to anybody because they would make fun of them or they would, you know, embarrass them or something. And my cousin really is not afraid of anybody. Um, she has no reason to be afraid of this person because she didn't know what was going on behind closed doors in our home. Sure. Uh, but she's also a loud mouth and she doesn't care. So she told everybody, she told everybody. Um, and my mom found out my mom got really mad. Um, and she left him that that was what she needed. She saw that he was now victimizing other people that she cared about and she left. And immediately after that, she went to the police and she said, I want you to arrest this person for killing my son. And they said, uh, okay, well, well, we'll send it to the DA and we'll see what he says. The DA told my mom that they would not press charges because she gave him an alibi. And what they're referring to is when they asked her if she thought her boyfriend was capable of killing Jacob. And she said, I don't think so. So I don't think so translates into an alibi. Well, it's not an alibi, <laughs> obviously, I mean, because nobody, Absolutely. yeah, yeah, nobody could have alibied him. He was the only one there with Jacob. So that was their it, excuse. Which he admitted, I believe. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was in, I think, 1991 or 92. And that was when he was arrested for less than 24 hours and released uh, because the DA decided that they weren't going to press charges against him for Jacob's death. So he was arrested for Jacob's death, for mm -hmm. Jacob's murder. It was um, involuntary manslaughter, I think is what they charged him with. Yeah, Sure. Um, and so he was held for less than 24 hours. Was yeah. there a retaliation from this individual? Yes. He stalked us for probably three or four years after that. He would follow us around town. He would come to my window at night and whisper that he was going to fucking kill me. 
I used to sleep under my bed because I was so afraid. Yeah. I, I was the shell of a person. I, I couldn't make eye contact with people. I apologized for everything. I would ask if I could use the restroom and if my mom would say yes, I would say I'm sorry. And then I would run away. Ugh. So we didn't push for things to happen because we were scared that he was going to kill us still. And eventually he stopped. And we tried again. And then we were told that we had passed the statute of limitations. And back then in New Mexico, there was a statute of limitations on second degree murder. Um, and that's changed now. There's no longer a statute of, of limitations. And because of the Supreme Court ruling, it has been retroactive. So Jacob's case would still be able to be tried today if somebody cared enough to try it. What are the steps that we or that you take to get this case retried? <laughs> yeah. I wish that there was a manual for this. It's Yeah. It it's really like a really demented game of chess. It's kind of how I see it. Um I'm always planning like three or four moves ahead. <laughs> you know, if this happens, then I'm going to do this. If this happens, then I'm going to do this. And uh, that's kind of the stuff that goes through my mind all the time. Uh, in 2005, we did have a cold case investigator reopen the case. He was with the state police. Um, and he was very clear in his findings that, sorry, uh, he's very clear in his findings that it was obvious that at the very least, this was a negligence, you know, child abuse case. But that there was sufficient evidence at the time to to press charges against him, and there was sufficient evidence to take it to trial. But because of, at the time, the statute of limitations, he didn't really feel like that there was much that could be done to bring the case forward. And so my mom and I kind of just waited. We kept lobbying for you know, changes in legislation in New Mexico. And I started to watch kind of like these more child abuse cases come through New Mexico that were pretty similar to Jacob's case in my case. And a lot of these parents or caretakers or people who are abusing these children and end up murdering them, they, in my opinion, don't get the type of sentence that they should. Um, I don't think that eight years, 10 years is enough if you're taking the life of a child. And we don't have the death penalty here. And and I'm not necessarily pro-death penalty. I think that there's a lot of problems <laughs> with, with our justice system and our penal system. But when you Absolutely. have somebody who is a predator, who is a danger to children and women, and when you fail to react and respond and to hold them accountable you're essentially condoning their behavior and encouraging them to continue and for those people who refused to press charges against him at the time any other victims that he had from that point on are on them in my opinion yeah 
I like agree somewhat with you. Well, like, yeah. you know, along the lines of that. I'm personally okay if they rot in hell for eternity. I mean, I think that at the very least, they should not be allowed to have access to future victims. Yeah. You know, I think that's just kind of where I, I land on that. But I kept saying to myself that somebody should do something about this epidemic in New Mexico. Somebody should say something about it. And I kept waiting. And finally, I just decided that I was going to do something. And so I created True Consequences to help other family members in my state who are fighting for justice. So I created the show to, to help family members and to give them that space to tell their story in their words, where they don't have to worry about being edited for content or context, um, where it doesn't matter if they don't have anything new to tell about the story. A lot of traditional media, does, they don't want to cover cases that are old yeah. unless there's something new to talk about. And so I created True Consequences to raise awareness, to educate people in my state. Eric, can yeah. you do me a favor? Can you turn your microphone down just a little bit? I think sure. that's what's creating that feedback. Sure. Is that better? Uh, a little bit more. Turn it, turn it up a little higher. Okay. It's weird because I am on my headphones. A little, little down, down a little bit. Just split the difference. Hello? That's better. Okay. Thank you. Sorry about that. No, it's okay. I think that's what it's coming from. It's just the micro is super hot. Let me just make sure that the right mic is selected. Uh, I'm looking at it. It says you have your Zoom F4. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And your kilohertz just jumped from 44 to 48 too. So I don't know what happened when you came back in, but... I don't know either. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we're here. It's all good. Yeah. So that's True Consequences was a love letter to Jacob. And as a result of telling his story and advocating for him and other podcasts and other YouTube channels, his case was reopened by the Attorney General last year. It's currently being investigated. Oh, wow. Yeah. After 35 years. Well, that's like a small victory for, you know, and I'm, I'm so happy about that. We finally have hope for the first time in 35 years, and that feels really good. I yeah, that's that. amazing. That's amazing that your advocacy has led to that. That's incredible. What, where, is, I have a bunch of questions, but I think the first one is, where is this individual? He still lives in Socorro. <laughs> and he's still out running around the streets. Mm -hmm. He's much older now, but obviously, yeah. Mm -hmm. Was he a very active member of the church? No. No, he was. Uh, he was kind of an outcast from the church. He was into substances and. That's what I was going to ask if he was into, if there was substance abuse that played a part in this whole thing. Definitely. He was, he was very much uh, into substances. Um, alcohol, methamphetamine, um, all of the above. <laughs> so I only know for sure based on what he's told the police, which was um, alcohol, I think cocaine and marijuana. So he was not, in, so actually, your father 
Where does he stand in all this? Do you have a relationship with him? No, my dad, after Jacob died, he kind of disappeared. Um, and I didn't really talk to him again until I was an adult. And we had kind of an on and off connection. Uh, I think I had a lot of anger towards him because I felt like he should have been more present sure. uh, in our lives. And I had a lot of anger about the fact that I was essentially abandoned in, to the worst possible scenario. Um, and my dad passed away a couple of years ago of COVID. I'm sorry. Yeah, but it was, uh, I don't know. I got to tell him that, that Jacob's case got reopened and I got to tell him you know, that I was going to continue fighting and, and he got to hear all of that. So you know, it, I think I grieved the relationship that could have been, you know, when that happened. Yeah. Um, but he was just kind of not there. Well, I love that you created this platform to narrate other stories and tell other people's stories that are cold cases. Has there been other cases that have brought, been brought forward and reopened? Not necessarily reopened, but there there were a couple of cases where there wasn't a lot of movement. And then, you know, I, I can't take credit for it what the detectives did and, and all the tips that came in. But I think that the awareness certainly helped with a couple of the cases. So one was uh, Elia Sotero, all of his, the people that were responsible for his murder were arrested and are currently uh, soon to face trial. And the same thing with another case, Ryan Savage Jr., where uh, things just weren't moving and suddenly there was a big break and everybody who was involved was arrested. So it's, it's really fulfilling to see that. But I think the biggest reward for me is to be able to, offer my experience to others who are going through sure. this in New Mexico and, you know, try to offer them some pointers on how they can proceed and what they can do to make an impact on their cases. It's wonderful what you're doing, man. And it's just, it's so, it's so heartbreaking that it takes circumstances like these to lead into action and then to open and then to try to create a dialogue and a narrative to force law enforcement or force individuals to face the consequences of their horrific actions yeah but i mean this is hope that you can eventually that you can cope, you can move on, and you can do something positive with all of this. Yeah, I think raising awareness on issues of domestic violence and issues of child abuse, um, raising awareness about issues of ethics and true crime and uh, all of those tricky Absolutely. things, I think all of that goes a long way to making things better slowly and in small ways. Yeah. And I feel like Absolutely. every time you share your story, another person feels like they're not alone in this. So they share their story and it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it really is. So Eric, um, where can we find, or where can people find you? Where can our audience reach out to you? Tell us all the, all the things, all the socials, how, how are we, can we put this in the show notes as well, but sure. Uh, so trueconsequences.com is my website. You can link out to pretty much every other way to get a hold of me there. 
Um, but I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So Facebook and Instagram are at True Consequences Pod, and Twitter is at True Cons Pod. Okay. And then how can we support you in this journey to, you know, get justice? Uh, you're definitely supporting me now by letting me tell Jacob's story here <laughs> and, and tell my story here. I'm very grateful for that. Uh, as soon as I saw that you both were collaborating for this project, I mean, I think I immediately messaged you on your website and said, I want to be on here. Um, so I'm very glad that you're doing this. It, it's it's an awesome service. So thank you thank for you. that. Um, thank you. Well, thank you if, for being here and being yeah, a part of it. But if you're listening to me right now or you're watching me right now, uh, a share goes a really long way with Jacob's story. So share this episode or share my episodes about Jacob. Um, share the petition that we have to keep putting pressure on the attorney general. I think we're close to 100,000 signatures. Um, you know, the more oh, wow. the more eyes that are on this case, the more politically unpopular it is for them to ignore us, uh, the more likely we are going to see something happen. So um, that pressure really goes a long way. It seems like not you know, very much, but it, it really helps tremendously. Well, thank you. You know, that's absolutely right. You know, Tara and I often talk about, you know, this is a, this is a club that no one really wants to belong to. But at the end of the day, we're all part of the survivor squad. Yeah. Yes. So thank you, Eric. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much. Yay. Well, that was like so amazing, your story. And I'm just so happy that you're here, that you're sharing your story, sh helping others. And you're just like a fucking amazing person. Thank you. Uh, you both are very inspiring to me. So thank you for all your courage and strength. I know it's not easy to be out there, um, especially at the level that both of you are with the amount of scrutiny that you probably get. So um, it's nice to have a conversation with somebody who gets it. Well, it's trauma bonding and yeah. stuff. You know, the seven stages of trauma bonding. Have you heard about that? I okay, I'm, I'm gonna send you an article about it because I think that if your mom knows about it, it's gonna help her understand that relationship and then, you know, less shame, less guilt for yourself and you're like, oh, this guy trapped me because yeah. he used these seven steps. Yeah, I think victim blaming is an interesting, interesting is the wrong word. It's a strange phenomenon. The best I can kind of figure out in my mind is that it is, almost like a natural defense mechanism that people have. 100%. They want to distance themselves from feeling like they could be in that situation. And so in order to put distance between them, they try to find what they perceive somebody did wrong in that situation that they would do correctly. And it's not even intentionally that they're trying to be jerks about it. They're just trying to protect their psyches because it's so hard to hear this stuff. That is a high, like, I don't think anyone has ever said that better, <laughs> honestly. <sighs> Man, yeah, the victim blaming is is tough to deal with. And I, I always tell people, you know, some people will never understand what it's like to fight for justice for their loved ones and good for them. Yeah, good for them, exactly. Which is kind of like bless your soul, bless your heart. 
Absolutely. And I think that's just as good an argument as any to talk about the stigma. If we get rid of the stigma, if we get rid of the shame and we, we embrace our community and we say, look, it's not your fault that this happened to you. There's nothing you could have done to stop him from targeting you. Absolutely. It has nothing to do with you. You were just in the wrong place at the right time, right? And if we can get rid of that stigma, then people don't have to deflect and they don't have to push themselves away from that because they see, oh, it could happen to anybody. You know, I, I refrain from calling this person a monster because I think that it does create this myth of only monsters are capable of this. And it's really only That's humans are capable of this. He is a human. He's got a twisted mind. He's got problems, all those other things. It doesn't excuse what he's done, but we've got to face the fact that this is a person. That's a great yeah. point. Yeah, because I, I think I've called my attacker, uh, Dirty John, like monster. And I used to call him like the devil. Um, however, that affected some of his survivors in a different way. And so I wanted to respect that. Mm -hmm. And so I called him a monster instead. But... It's you bring a really interesting fact that like he is a human. He was a human. I think that it's our natural self-preservation stuff here. Again, you know, we, we want to distance ourselves from this. 100%. It's natural, but we can't, you can't ignore it away. And you can't describe it. And it's, yeah, it's, you know, that was one of the things that I was able when I sat down across the table from my father, and I had a relationship with my father leading up to the film, like for tw 26 years since he was incarcerated, all to culminate in that one moment that's right over my shoulder there, sitting across from him to confront him, why did you do this, right? And I realized, you know, that as monstrous as he is, it is, it's, yeah, it's a human being. They're just not connected to a human reality. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's a chilling conclusion to come to. It certainly was for me in that moment. I was yeah. like, oh boy, this is, you can't explain it away. It's not the boogeyman. Yeah. <laughs> it's not when you turn the lights out, they come out. It's, they are there, right there in the grocery store next to you, in the car next to you at a stoplight, in your waiting room of your doctor's office, at the gym, wherever. I think too, like everybody you come in contact with has had some exposure to this type of abuse, whether it's through somebody else they know, or you know, through a friend of a friend. I think more people are touched by this than are not. So justice for Jacob. Ugh. Yes. Honestly, like I'm thinking back to it and I just want to cry all over again because the emotions and what we all felt for mm -hmm. Eric and his baby brother is just terrible. And it's just it, it as a child who lived in fear, right? And you know, because my father, you know, terrorized my mother and I and then obviously the ultimate offense I just, I feel for him because I know what that's like 
And I'm saying, I mean, so many people in the audience know what that's like to having grown up in abusive or broken homes where you are constantly tiptoeing and you're afraid to speak up and you, you know, I mean, I, I did speak up obviously, but it's, it's such a burden to carry and it, and, and I'm just, I'm so glad that he's able to do advocacy work on behalf of his, of his mom and behalf of Jacob. And, you know, and I think a lot of this, you know, you can relate to too, because the way his mom was blamed. A hundred percent. And I think it's never okay to have victim blaming or victim blame for anyone like survivors always should be listened to and always be taken seriously. And I think that it's so important to turn your trauma into something. And I think that what he is doing is so important. And I can't wait to see him at the festival that we're going to in Austin. The True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival in Austin. Yes. So check us out there if you're in the Austin area. That's when? September? End of August? The last weekend of August. You could check us out there and support survivors and other podcasts. And then there's just a lot of cool panels that are going to be there. We're going to do a panel about trauma, moving past trauma. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. And we have some workshops coming up, right, Tara? Yes, we do. We have two this weekend, and then we have one the last weekend of June. Fantastic. Until next time, Survivors, I'm Tara Newell. And I'm Collier Landry. And this is the Survivor Squad Podcast. We'll see you guys. See ya. The Survivor Squad Podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please consider supporting this program by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Survivor Squad.